Welcome to the latest episode of the Elevate EV podcast, where I take you on a road trip to the world of EVs and the future of sustainable transport. I'm your host, Bridie Schmidt. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Bundjalung people, traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast has been made, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may be listening. Joining me today is Nirav Bhatt, a fellow journalist focused on helping Australians switch to electric vehicles as well as making their home fully electric and sustainable. He currently writes for his own site at www.bhatt.id.au and for TechAU. And he also spends a lot of time on Australian social media and chat forums providing information about EVs and answering frequently asked questions. He also has a YouTube channel called Electrifying Everything that is experimenting with different types of EV testing videos to see what helps people. I'll add some links in the show notes. In today's episode, we take a look at real-world range and that little number some call claimed range, but which is actually more officially known as the WLTP standard and is a globally recognised lab test for fuel efficiency. We also look at what new EV owners can do to find out the difference between the two before taking off on the next holiday road trip. Nirav also tells us about the 2024 Polestar 2 and the Genesis GV60, two high-end electric vehicles that offer very different driving experiences. We also touch on the role of government policies in promoting EV adoption and discuss the importance of time-of-use pricing for EV charging, the challenges of retrofitting old apartment buildings with charging infrastructure, and the potential for street-level charging solutions like Jolt's 25-kilowatt DC chargers. Finally, we wrap up with a bit of a debate on boost modes in electric vehicles now the long-range Model Y is getting this upgrade. Are they just about bragging rights? Don't all EVs technically have a boost mode? So buckle up and get ready for another electrifying episode. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Elevate EV podcast. I've got here with me Nirav Bart, who is an independent journalist focused on helping Australians switch to electric vehicles as well as making their homes fully electric and sustainable. Welcome, Nirav. Good morning, Bridie. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I saw you do some writing for TechAU, but you've also got your own blog. I'd be nice to sort of find out what got you into EVs. Well, I've been a technology journalist and photographer for about almost 20 years now. Makes you feel old when you think about when you started. <laughs> but yeah, more recently, I switched into covering sustainability and electric vehicle topics quite a long time ago. You know, I occasionally used to visit Ford down in Victoria and, and look at cars, but I'd never owned a petrol car, by the way. I've, you know, driven my parents' ones every now and then, but I, I didn't want to have a car unless it was not polluting. So I was waiting and it was a long wait. <laughs> I guess I had the luxury of being in Sydney. So we have decent public transport. Not everyone has the choice, obviously, even in the big cities in other parts of cities. So EVs have really only been around for a couple of years in, in any volume in Australia. It sounds like you were waiting a while then. Yeah, I was. Uh, initially, obviously, Teslas were the only game in Australia, but I was waiting for there to be a bit more choice and affordability because, let's be realistic, not everyone can afford 100K, 80K, even 60 or 50K. Uh, so it's really exciting recently, for, for example, to see now three new Chinese 
made EVs that are under 40K if you get the base model before on roads. Yeah, that's right. The the BYD Dolphin, the GWM Aura and the MG4. It's really interesting to see what will happen over the next few months, I think, because they're all coming onto the market now, aren't they? Yes, it'll be interesting to see which ones people are interested in purchasing and if they can get enough stock in. I think besides the fact that Tesla and BYD uh, have strengths of their own, one of the reasons they sold so many in the last year or two was because they could get a lot in. Simple supply and demand. People really, really wanted an EV. And if those are the ones that they could get quickly, that's the one they bought. Now there's a lot more brands available and a lot more models and a lot more pricing levels. Hopefully there's more supply via ships from all over the world coming in and we'll see what the true kind of brand preference is. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I guess a lot of people chose Tesla because they'd be able to access not only the Tesla supercharger, but also other charging networks. Do you think that opening up the Tesla networks is going to be something that will get more people on board along with the rollout of more national networks such as that with the NRMA? I think it all helps, but it's not clear-cut because Tesla, quite sensibly, has only released a bit less than half of their charges to any brand of EV to access, and they tend to be the ones that are in less popular areas on less popular routes to a large extent. It's fair enough. That's that's their commercial prerogative. But the other catch is Tesla's work perfectly with Tesla charges because it's the same company and it's been tested, you know, millions of times. But other brands are finding that when they connect in, sometimes they don't work. There's been reports of BYD, GWM, MGs, all having trouble, certain brands, certain models, certain batches connecting to Tesla superchargers. And then even when you can connect, other brands are finding that because of the way the car was engineered and the Tesla chargers were engineered for 400-volt systems, your more advanced 800-volt EVs like your Hyundai, Kias, and Genesis only charge at about 40 kilowatts on a lot of Tesla superchargers. Not all of them, but some of them. It's not very fast. So why would you pay the premium Tesla price unless you know that your particular car model will, one, actually be able to connect properly, and two, get a decent speed to justify paying the premium price? Well, that's right, isn't it? It must be disappointing for Kia and Hyundai owners or their luxury brands because they are some of the cars that get the highest charging speeds in Australia, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, I'd actually tested the Ionic 5 recently at EV Charger, a 350 down past Goulburn. And yeah, it was bang on the promised 10 to 80% in 18 minutes. That's really great, isn't it? Especially for people who are on their holiday road trip or doing the the drive between Sydney and Melbourne. Exactly. I can actually, from from a much more affordable car perspective, I, I borrowed an MG ZSEV Excite last Christmas and did a family road trip from Sydney to West Melbourne and back again on the Hume. I got to spend a lot of time at charges talking with people because that car doesn't charge very fast. <laughs> and yes, it does make a big difference. You know, you're sitting there. It's not just MG. There are plenty of other models 
from other brands that don't charge as fast. Like the Kia Nero, the BYD, Ado3 doesn't charge that fast either. And at the same time, you might see uh, an e-tron or an Ionic or an EB6 and they're gone <laughs> long before you finish. And what is that exactly, just for people who aren't so tech savvy? Is it to do with the onboard charger in the car? That's true, yes. So generally speaking, the more expensive the car, as a rule of thumb, the more speed it will be able to charge at, except charge at from a charger. So all cars are going to charge slowly at a slow charger because the charger is only outputting electricity at a low rate. But when you get to an ultra-fast charger that says 350 or 200 or 150, your car's actually got to be able to accept that and not all cars can. The uptake in Australia is on the increase and we're beginning to see queues at chargers. What do you think that effect is going to have? Like this Christmas is we're going to have the most EVs on the road that we've ever had in Australia. What's going to be happening out there, do you think? I think that people who already own their EVs will probably, and have already done road trips before at Easter or other times of year, will probably be relatively well prepared. It's the new people who haven't done it before that may experience, quite likely experience frustration, especially people traveling with families, uh, whether it's a lot of adults or children attached, they tend to go for the same big charging locations like Charge Fox Euroa in Victoria because there's lots of food options and toilet facilities available and there's not that many charges. So you could be waiting a long time. If there's a listen leaf plugged in ahead of you, you could be waiting a really, really long time <laughs> as an example. But even some of the other brands, like I said before, I think it's actually possible that in the next year or two, we're going to see so many EVs sell that despite the best efforts of EV, Charge Fox, Amp Charge, BP Pulse, their rollout is just not going to be able to keep up. It just takes a lot of time and effort, which people may not appreciate to get planning approvals, land, hardware, just labor, as we know that labor is in short supply across Australia, pretty much across a lot of specialized professions. It can take a year to a year and a half to get a fast DC charger set up from first approval to actual activation. I, I think it's possible that some people might buy EVs and sell them soon afterwards. It, not a lot, but there will be some because I've seen it happen in the US and the UK. They just weren't ready for the reality. I think that's a really good point. It's probably a good time to talk about, well, what can people do? I have seen a lot of people going on to Facebook groups, for example, and asking questions, which is fantastic. And it's so encouraging when you see EV owners sharing the knowledge that they've got. Um, what sort of tips or suggestions would you have for new EV owners before they go on their summer trip coming up this year? First tip would be go on a weekend away to get good practice for driving two, three, four hundred kilometers. If that's not possible, at least you've got more daylight hours to drive in compared to winter. Go for a 150k, 200ks in one direction if you can and back again in a day so you get used to all the ways that your car is set up uh, for longer driving, how fast the battery gets to 
depleted depending on your driving style because that makes a huge difference. I'm not a lead foot. I can go a lot further on the same battery compared to someone who's really smashing the accelerator. My first EV was actually a plug-in hybrid. It was a 2014 Mitsubishi Outlander. And so it was a really good way for me to ease into owning an EV. It had a type one plug. So for those out there listening, all EVs that you buy now for AC charging will have a type two plug. But when I had this plug-in hybrid, it, it had this type one plug. I had a type one to type two adapter, but I didn't know about how slow type one was. So that was a bit of a learning curve, even for the small battery in the plug-in hybrid. Yeah, that's a really good point. So when people do these practice runs that I'm suggesting on a weekend, try and get your battery down to maybe 30%, 25%. Don't go too low. There's a lot of people who really want to be heroes and charge at like 5% or something. That is super risky. There have been, you know, one in five times or whatever, you end up at a charger and it's under maintenance, someone's broken it, or there might be a queue of five people. You don't want to be stuck there because that's your only choice. You want there to be different options. So run it down to maybe 30%, go to a decently fast charger and see how long does it really take to charge so you can actually add your buffers into your journey planning. I was listening to other families talking to each other while charging last Christmas. One of the things that I heard from probably the non-EV enthusiast spouse or a family member was, why is it taking so long? And the other person had to explain it to them because they hadn't actually done any practice runs before. That's a really good tip as well, maybe, is you want to sort of prepare your family members to temper their experiences. So maybe take your most resistant family member with you so that they get used to, yes, it can take longer, but it also means you can step out and have a break while the car charges. Yeah. 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 In fact, it doesn't have to be seen as a negative. I'm not a fan of, look, unless it's like an emergency and you have to get from Sydney to Brisbane or whatever in one day, it's really not safe to try and do it in one day. You don't get a hero badge from me for trying to do it in one day. Take time. It's more enjoyable for the driver and the passengers. Stop somewhere, you know, going from Sydney to Melbourne, pause at Jugiong, buy some jam. If you have some kids, let them play in the play equipment. Give yourself some peace and quiet. If, even if you don't have kids, I like to have an ice cream every couple of hours, maybe if it's hot or a cold drink or just go for a walk because I'm six foot three and even in spacious cars, I need a proper stretch. <laughs> I'm not as tall as you, but I need to stretch my knees too. It's not just about the charging experience. It's also about expectations around driving range. Do you have a YouTube channel where you post videos of your driving range tests? Driving range has so many different factors. If it's really cold, you know, you live in Tasmania or you're driving in Victoria in the middle of winter, your range is going to be shorter, especially if you have the heating cranked up. If you're driving up a mountain one way, your range will fall really quickly, but then you'll find when you're driving back down the other side of the mountain, your range will pick up due to regenerative braking if you've got that turned on and your car has a a strong regenerative braking feature. So when I was doing my range test videos, I realized I love data. So I was looking at the altitude changes and like, you know, Sydney to Goulburn and then Goulburn to Sydney 
completely different data because one way you're going up a slope, another way you're going down a slope. Mm. I've always um, found it interesting that when you look at those, the, the energy use line it kind of echoes the hill that you're driving up in a way. Yeah, and, and other factors will make a big difference as well. Like same as in a house because I'm interested in sustainable houses. If you leave your house on, you know, Arctic 18-degree conditions, your air conditioner is going to be using a lot of power. Whereas if you put it on maybe 23, it's going to be using a lot less power. And in winter, if you're cold in the car, I found if your car has this feature, it's much less energy used to heat the seats and the steering wheel than it is to heat the whole car. Unless your car's got a heat pump in it, it's using resistive Heat. Like when, you know, in winter, my family keep the heater on, you know, 20 maybe. Oh. But we walk around in fleecy pants and, you know, jumpers. So if you're driving in winter in like shorts and a T-shirt with the heating cranked up, that's going to use more battery. Getting back to the idea of people going out and getting an, an idea of what the real world range of the EV that they've bought, it hopefully they've come across some information already about the difference between WLTP range, which is a, a lab test to compare vehicle energy or fuel efficiencies and what the difference between that and the real world range is. How would you recommend people get an idea of the range on their EV before they go on a big road trip? I guess I would say three things. Your car, your average car dealer or car EV website will put the WLTP range number. Though I do notice BYD sometimes puts a different number, which is a lot higher. It's called NEDC, and I call it never even damn close. Not even damn, yeah, not even yeah. damn close. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, most most brands put the WLTP, and and I've seen some new non-technical electric car purchases say that oh, that's a lie. I never achieve it. It's not a lie. It's just you're interpreting it differently. That number is an average of city and motorway. So generally speaking, electric cars are different to petrol cars. In the city, an electric car will do a lot better than its promised range. It might do about 20% better. But on motorway, usually it's about 20% less. It's a big difference, isn't it? And I noticed I had to take a, a quick drive this morning and on the energy consumption screen, the battery was saying it had 260 or so kilometres left in it. But according to the way I was driving the car at the time, if I kept on driving that way, I apparently would be able to get 410 kilometres. And I might actually post those screenshots on Twitter later so that I can link it in the show notes. But it goes to show that if you can keep an eye on how you're driving, you can get the most driving range out of your car. Yeah. Something else that's important is probably no one will admit it, but a lot of Australians do casual speeding. And, you know, a, a lot of the time I have loan cars and I want to treat them well and test them and drive legally. So I set my car at the actual limit. A lot of people set it at the GPS limit. You could do that too if you want, but it's a bit more on the edge because 
going downhill, some brands like the Polestar 2 overshoot by about five, six kilometers. If there's a speed trap at the bottom of the hill and you're going at GPS speed plus a few more, cops could get some money out of you. Also, the faster you go in an EV above 90, 100 kilometers, the thirstier your car will be. You get quite thirsty. And I know from people who've kind of on the quiet told me that they actually drive at, you know, 120 on a motorway. That's why their efficiency level is not that great. The car's a lot thirstier at 120 than it is at 110 or 105. Yeah, that's right. So, and, and so the range tests that you've got on YouTube, I notice a lot of them you've done going up hills. Because I log the altitude as well as the live speed on my range test videos. I happen to notice that the better engineered cars with better regenerative braking regather a lot more of the electricity going down slopes compared to the some of the cheaper cars. Oh, that's interesting. So as an example, the MG ZSEV, which is a perfectly serviceable car, doesn't have regen braking when you have cruise control on. Just it's a hardware limitation. There will never be a software patch for it. It just is what it is. That's interesting. I did not know that. Whereas I know that the Tesla does when I've got it on autopilot, it'll it'll recoup that energy on the way down the hill. Yeah. And then there's, uh, not to pick out any particular brand in particular, so I'll just choose a different one. Say the BYD Auto 3, the regen braking is not that strong. So it's not going to gather back as much electricity on the downhill slope either. And so some EVs, you can actually pick the level of regeneration too, can't you? Is that generally in the more expensive brands? Generally, but that's changing now. Like the MG4 has lots of different levels from almost off to one pedal, full one pedal driving, which is good to see on a more affordable brand. Some cars like Tesla's, Elon chooses your regen braking level for you. It just is whatever the car software at the time decides. I like the way that Hyundai, Motor Group and Kia do it, which is to have paddles on the back of the steering wheel. So you can adjust it as you go and you don't need to stuff around touching any touchscreens. Yeah, I had that in my Mitsubishi Outlander too. I really liked it, actually. It gave you that good balance. So let's move on to some EVs that you've been doing test drives in lately. And I think, firstly, the, you've been in the new Polestar, the 2024 refreshed model. What did yeah. you think about that? Yeah, I've been in that one for a week. And at the moment, I've got a Genesis GV60, which is the premium Hyundai brand, for a bit over a week as well. And it's really interesting to see that they're not exactly the same price, but they're both not cheap. <laughs> they're both substantial amounts of money, uh, but they're a very different driving experience. So it's not the case that spending a lot of money will get you a similar driving experience. You've really got to sit in the car and have a go at it to tell what it's like. And each each of those vehicles will suit different people in different ways. So the, the Polestar 2 that I had was like the, the top of the range performance version and the suspension is hard. Like 
the roads in my area, look, it's a first world problem not comparing to like poor countries. It's not horrendous, but there's lots of bumps and little holes and little repatched parts. And you can feel it in your bones in a Polestar performance because the suspension is tweaked to be really sporty. Whereas in comparison, the Genesis GV60, it feels like driving in your favorite comfy sofa with lots of technology in it, like super comfortable. In fact, what I found was uh, I went on a bit of a longer drive the other day and after an hour, I found a feature that I didn't know existed, which was the bottom of my seat, lumbar area, was started massaging me. It was, that was nice, but it was unexpected because I didn't realize that was a feature. <laughs> The Polestar starts at just under 70,000 now, I think, for the single standard motor. Um, but, it, but it goes up to 140,000 or so for that, that high performance dual motor one, doesn't it? Whereas the, the Genesis is, it's all aimed at the top end. Which is a little bit disappointing. Overseas in, in the UK, they have rear wheel drive Genesis GV60s available as well. Unfortunately, they decided not to include them in the range in Australia. So what about the, so this is the 2024 model. I know there's been a couple of changes, haven't there? One issue I've always struggled with with the Polestar too is that it's not on a an all-electric platform. So it's got that carton tunnel for the driveline from, I think, Polestar and Volvo make petrol versions on the same platform. Correct, yes. So while Polestar has made a lot of changes, Compared to the initial model, the basic body is still largely the same. There's a huge transmission tunnel and the center console next to the driver and the front passenger is really big, like the biggest of any EV I've driven and that polarizes people. You know, there are, I've heard it described as sitting in a fighter jet cockpit. So if that's what you want to do, that's the car for you because that's the snuggest I think that would be the nicest way of putting it. It's the snuggest cockpit style seat. There's plenty of leg room in front, but nothing on the sides. Yeah. I mean, I love the design of the Polestar. They've got a real, a really strong brand ID in the design of their cars. But the, the 2024 Polestar 2 has got some specific changes, doesn't it? Not just on the exterior, but also underneath, underneath the floor. It used to be all front wheel drive for the base models, but now you can get rear wheel drive or dual motor front and rear. They've also increased the range. They have increased the charging speed. They've increased the front to remove the grill and put in a new sort of sensor panel instead. They've also reduced the carbon footprint, which to their credit, uh, as far as I know, Polestar is the most transparent company when it comes to the carbon footprint of their cars from cradle to grave. Yeah, they've got that Project Zero, I think it's called, where they're looking to decarbonise every inch of the manufacturing process. Yeah, it's an interesting project and Mm. it's good to see. uh, I wish other car companies did something like that, at least iteratively tell people what they're doing to reduce the emissions of their cars, both in the production process, the driving process and in the post-life as well. Beyond 
what seems to be common in other brands is we've given you some recycled plastic seats, for example. That seems to be about as far as most other brands go. Yeah, or, or vegan leather, which I'm still not convinced of the sustainability of. It does mean less cows dying for huge amounts of upholstery. But <laughs> yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that phrase, vegan leather. It sounds like a dystopian like sci-fi future novel where the leather's made of vegans. <laughs> <laughs> now that you put it that way, I'm not going to be able to unthink that. Um, Plastic. Let's let's just be honest about it. Yeah, I much prefer the cloth seats. And this is Australia. If you have a black so-called vegan leather plastic, really, it gets hot. <laughs> if it's in the sun. I remember a few years back, BMW had a concept in which they were going to make an EV, and every bit was removable and replaceable. I don't know what's happened to that, but I mean, I think that's a really good idea. It's an interesting idea. I, my background previously was in the technology journalism space, and companies have tried that, uh, like Nokia. I think they currently have a, a phone which, if people remember the old like Nokia days, where you could drop it and you'd be more about worried about it making a dent in the floor than the phone itself and just break up into bits and you'd click all the bits together like Lego and be on your way. And you could uh, replace the battery if you wanted. I had one of those. Yeah. 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 yeah that's a good point, actually. We Because of Australia's frankly embarrassing lack of fuel efficiency standards. Come on, Elbo, get get that going. He's my local member as well. So You need to get down to the local Vietnamese pork roll shop and talk to him about it. <laughs> yes. I think Labor's done a lot of good things at federal level for sustainability and action on climate change, but they've still got a lot of things to do and even what they've done, they've been too slow. You know, we're in a climate emergency. We don't need to have endless years and years of consultations. I find that really common in Australia across the board, like consultations about electric buses. We don't need consultations. China's got countless thousands of them, maybe tens or hundreds of thousands of them. It's a done thing. And efficiency standards, let's just admit that other countries are doing it better than us and say, we're going to adopt the New Zealand standard or we're going to adopt the Californian standard. We're going to do it in six months. Done. Don't need to have endless talk fests about it. No, I suspect they've got a lot of behind the scenes lobbying going on from, shall we say, incumbents that don't want to have to change things too fast. Tough luck incumbents. You've had your day. And there's been a bit of debate going on about the New South Wales decision to cut the EV rebates. It's a bit of a, a chicken of the egg thing, I suppose, because obviously we're getting more uptake. That's great. And as you were saying, we really need charging infrastructure to catch up with that uptake. They take a while to happen. What do you think, though? Is Do you think that $3,000 or more charging infrastructure is what's going to get more people over the line on EVs? I take a less black and white view of this than a lot of EV commentators who are like, give us our $3,000 rebate. It's not that simple. So across all levels of government in Australia, people want government services and the economy isn't doing not that great. So government budgets are a bit tight and they have to cut in some places. I think the rebates across all the states were too generous to some extent in not being means tested. I know, for example, a quite wealthy person who's got two EVs with rebates in New South Wales. 
They didn't need any rebates. They could afford to have bought both of those cars in cash. It's a waste of government money to give someone like that a rebate. So if they could have kept the rebate in some way, maybe make it smaller and make it more targeted to say it's means tested to incomes below a sensible amount. And not like a lot of Australian government things where they make the cap so high to stop offending anyone that it's meaningless. And also make it so it's only cars that are below a certain amount, below 50 or below 45, really increase the volume of those semi-affordable because they're still only semi-affordable. You know, there's plenty of people like on my street who are like students or live in share houses. For them, 45, 50 grand is still a lot of money. They're buying, you know, your Kia Picantos for 20 grand or an MG3 for a similar amount of money. I think when those rebates were introduced, we didn't have those cars on the market, so it wouldn't have made any sense. But yeah, it certainly sounds like it's a policy setting that could be taken under consideration now. Hmm. Or at least maybe... Okay, get rid of the rebate, but keep the stamp duty exemption, for example. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, they're true to their word and put money into charging infrastructure that wasn't already allocated. Because it's all very well to say we're taking away X amount of money in rebates and spending half of it on charging infrastructure. Are we spending that anyway? Or is that new money? No, there is new money. There's $263 million in new money. So now the amount is around the half a million. Million, maybe $580 million mark, just a little bit under 9,000 New South Wales EV rebates that were taken up to the end of August. It was $75 million original commitment, so whatever is left out of that. So, yeah, there's definitely more money going out on charging infrastructure. And I think that the great thing that was uh, sort of highlighted was that it's not just fast charging infrastructure, it's more money to help get charges onto streets, for example, and to commuter car parks. And I'm hmm. one of the people who usually gets ignored in a lot of EV articles in that I don't have a driveway, I don't have a garage, and you see a lot of statements like, oh, everyone will just charge at home. Everyone will not charge at home. Yes, some people definitely need other options. Yeah. We need other options. Even if you live in an apartment, it's good that finally building standards are catching up and new apartments towers that are being planned now and will be built soon will have EV charging facilities in there. But I've been on strata committees before and lived in apartments for many years. I don't think any of the buildings I lived in in the past are going to get EV charging infrastructure because there's so many roadblocks. Buildings are built with a certain amount of electrical infrastructure by design to allow for your lights and your ovens and your air conditioners and everything else. Adding dozens of EV charges on that probably won't be able to fit within the capacity of that building's power infrastructure without spending a lot of money. And a lot, especially investors in apartment blocks, they don't like spending any money, not $500, let alone $50,000 or, or similar. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. So yeah, let's bring on lots more AC slow charges where people can park and charge at their train station, at their shopping mall, at their local park, on their local street. And I would love to see, to call out one company in particular, the development approvals and general government roadblocks to putting up more jolt charges out there. I don't know if you've seen any or used any, Brady, 
they're really good in terms of offering DC charging at 25 kilowatts. They're built on the electricity boxes on the streets, aren't they? So there's already a direct connection to the DC grid. Yeah, I haven't used one and I would love to give it a go. I think they were giving everybody seven kilowatt hours worth of charging. That's their business model. I really like that that basically covers for a lot of people all they need. Yeah, and it's like 15 minutes, so everyone's on and off quickly. The thing I like about street charges is that it's really visible. I was having a chat with someone yesterday and I didn't actually realise this, but Tesla has started putting in peak charge rates for certain spots. So that's been around for, what, a couple of months now? And that sort of speaks to that whole idea of encouraging people to charge at times where there's more supply of power. So, for example, during the day. So it'd be, you know, really good to see those sort of things built into AC street charges too. Yeah, the RAA is doing a lot of trials in South Australia as well and potentially other organisations are with different time of use pricing. Yeah, it's good to have price signals that it's a basic economics kind of idea that changing the price at different times will get people to shift their behaviour. Yeah, they. I saw a photo actually of of the RAA one, they had an actual like petrol station style sign with the different rates on it, which I thought was great. You know, you, you, people really start thinking about it when there's something visual there in front of them. Yeah, I guess for me, I'm used to it already because my house is on a time of use tariff. So depending on the season, like September and October, as well as April and May, uh, must be low demand seasons for my Osgrid electricity area because I get cheap rates pretty much 24-7 for those four months. And then in the peaks of summer and winter, I've just got a little pie chart on the fridge that shows when the price is cheap, medium, and in the evening, it's quite high. And because we have solar, generally we tend to, I tend to put all the things on timers so they run during the day. I have noticed that quite a few electricity providers are encouraging people to charge at night. I find that a bit problematic because those cheap EV charging night at night plans generally mean you're charging off coal. I don't think a lot of people realize that. That this is true. I would just, I would be personally encouraging the electricity providers to have what I think are called sun soaker tariffs and say, charge your EV for very low cost or into sometimes free between say 10 and 3 p.m. Yeah. I mean, I guess their business model is still based on uh, fossil fuels, isn't it? So hopefully it's a change that comes, but we might tie up soon, but it's been a really interesting chat. So final, final thing, I saw that Tesla Model Y long range is getting boost mode. I think you you drove something else with a boost mode recently. Do we need boost modes? What are they? Boost modes temporarily add even more power for a little while. It's kind of like a, almost like a computer game feature, really, um, added to your electric car. Do we really need them? Probably not. Are there many places you could use them? I can't really think of any besides empty parking lots um, because electric cars are fast already. Even the kind of boxy SUVs that aren't aerodynamic, you can usually beat most cars, you know, red light if, if you're that kind of person. And with the ones that are built to be quite powerful, like the two I've done recently, the G- Genesis GV60 and the Polestar 2 at the top end models, they are super powerful without any need for boost mode like 
you need to keep an eye on that speedo to make sure you're not going to lose any points. Yeah, I mean, unless you're doing like a boost from zero to 60, which let's face it, where are you going to do that? You're on a suburban road, probably shouldn't be doing it. I, I mean, I think there's obviously there's a small number of people that like to go to the track, but yeah, it's a little bit of a gimmick maybe. But- it's more of a bragging rights feature probably. Look at me, I've got boost mode. <laughs> And, well, you know what, maybe if that's what it takes to get some people over the line on EVs, then so be it, yeah. But the, the actual reality is all EVs are a boost mode compared to a petrol car or a diesel car. Love it. Yeah, they so are. Okay, look, thanks, Nirav. It's been really great having a chat with you today. I hope yeah, that you – Yeah, great, and hopefully we'll chat again another time. Sure, no worries. Thank you for joining us for the Elevate EV podcast. Before you go, if you found this episode informative and engaging, don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast to stay updated on future episodes. And please don't hesitate to reach out to let me know what you liked or if you have any questions and I'll do my best to answer them on the next episode. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Thanks again and hope you tune in again next time.